Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 8 to chapter 3, verse 5. Listen, my lover, look, here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My lover is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. My lover spoke to me and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come with me. See, the winter is past, the rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth. The season of singing has come. The cooing of doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its early fruit. The blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. My dove in the clefts of the rock, in the hiding places on the mountainside. Show me your face, let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. My lover is mine and I am his. He browses among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, turn, my lover, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the rugged hills. All night long in my bed I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him but did not find him. I will get up now and go about the city, through its streets and squares. I will search for the one my heart loves. So I looked for him but did not find him. The watchmen found me, and they made their rounds in the city. Have you seen the one my heart loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found the one my heart loves. I held him and would not let him go till I had brought him to my mother's house, to the room of the one who conceived me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. The second reading is from chapter 8, verses 1 to 7. If only you were to me like a brother who was nursed on my mother's breasts. Then, if I found you outside, I would kiss you, and no one would despise me. I would lead you and bring you to my mother's house, she who has taught me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the nectar of my pomegranates. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Who is this coming up from the desert, leaning on her lover? Under the apple tree I roused you. There your mother conceived you. There she who was in labour gave you birth. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. If one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, it would be utterly scorned. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Just like last week, what a way to start a book. You've just finished reading Ecclesiastes and you're feeling a bit depressed and you turn the page in your Bible and suddenly you're hit with this. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. It's like you've stumbled somehow into the sealed section of the Bible. And it's a bit difficult to figure out what on earth's going on. In fact, it's very difficult. It's hard to know who is speaking to who. It's hard to know when they're saying it and why they're saying it. It's hard to even understand the poetic imagery that they're using. I would have thought that saying your belly is like a mound of wheat is pretty risky terrain. Wouldn't it be better to say something like your stomach is cast like the grill plate of a barbecue? I'm no poet, but that feels like a metaphor that would work better, at least today. 
The fact is there are heaps of poetic images in the Song of Songs that are lost on us today unless we read them carefully. And then it's hard to know if this is one big connected poem with the same characters throughout, or is it actually lots of different poems, all of them about love, but randomly thrown together with no overarching storyline? It's a very difficult book to understand, and it raises heaps of questions. But for all its difficulties, what's very clear is that this book is about romantic love and especially sexual desire. You'd have to be a a bit of a brick to miss that. It's not crude, but it's very suggestive. And let's be honest, it's quite racy at times. And so the biggest question by far is the question one of my kids asked me this week. Each night we try to get them to read a chapter of the Bible and at some point they'd stumbled across Song of Songs. They read a bit of a page and then quickly decided that it wasn't for them. And so they said to me the other day when they heard that I was preaching on Song of Songs, why is Song of Songs even in the Bible? And I don't know if I just imagined it, but I swear there was a fair degree of disgust in their voice. But it's a very good question. Why is Song of Songs even in the Bible? Read through the whole song, not just a page, and you'll probably still have the same question. After all, God is mentioned maybe once in the book, but probably not at all, actually. Whereas romantic love and and sexual desire is slapping you in the face on every single page. So why is it in the Bible? One way of answering this question that became very popular was to say the entire poem is an allegory. So Jewish people said the entire thing is God declaring his love for his people. And Christians said at Um, later on, that the entire thing is Christ declaring his love for the church. But read the book, and there's a lot that doesn't fit with this interpretation. In fact, it gets a bit awkward at a number of points. Today we're going to see some of the answer to this question, why is Song of Songs even in the Bible? And the key to being able to answer it is to realise what kind of literature it is we're reading here. This is what's called wisdom literature. It's like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And wisdom literature is all about how to live well in God's world. It's, it's all about wise living. It's about having a way of life that understands God's world and our place in it, a way of life that's rich and righteous and full and blessed. Wisdom literature is about having a way of, of, of life that understands the character and the nature of life the way God's created it to be. So to answer the question of why Song of Songs is in the Bible, we have to listen carefully for the question that the book itself is wanting to answer. And this is the question Song of Songs asks and answers. If I want to live well in God's world, how should I understand romantic relationship between a man and a woman? Or we could put this another way. What is a wise way to handle the power of romance and sexual attraction? What is a wise way to handle the power of romance and sexual attraction? That's a question well worth asking, don't you think? A question absolutely worth having in the Bible. It's a question that's been asked again and again over thousands of years, and it's a question that's still being asked today. Turn on your TV and it's there. Our society is obsessed with romance and sex. You see it in shows like Jane the Virgin. You see it pretty much everywhere. The prevalence of pornography shows it's an extremely relevant question to people. Whether we realise it or not, as a society, we're still asking this question. What is a wise way to handle the power of romance and sexual attraction? 
But unfortunately, the answers given are not often wise at all. In fact, they can be shallow, they can be foolish, and they can even be terribly destructive. Part of the problem is that as a society, we like to pretend that we've already answered the question. The wise answer was given to us in the sexual revolution of the 60s and the 70s. And more recently, we've added to that wisdom with the erosion of gender as we break free from labels of male and female altogether. We already know what's wise, so don't ask the question unless you're willing to accept these answers. That's what we're told, and we're considered fools if we think differently. But wisdom is seen in its fruit. Wisdom is always seen in its fruit. And sadly, this world is one messed up, confused place when it comes to romance and sexual desire. And unfortunately, the sexual revolution and the erosion of gender hasn't given us wisdom at all. They've given us confusion and pain. And tragically, this has played out painfully in the real lives of everyday people over and over again. And we're not immune from it here. It's affected us too. In fact, we as God's family need to be the place where refugees from the sexual revolution find healing and where they find true wisdom which is exactly why Song of Songs is such a gift from God. The Song of Songs speaks ancient wisdom, true wisdom, but more than that, it speaks God's own wisdom. It's definitely not everything God has to say about romance and sex. It's not that. In fact, it's just a very small part of God's wisdom in this area, but it's a very important part. And it really does take careful reading because it's, it's not a philosophical treaty on romance and sex. It's definitely not a manual. It's a poem, a love poem. And we've got to read it that way if we're to hear what God has to say to us. And the first bit of wisdom God gives us in the Song of Songs is this. Romantic love between a man and a woman is a beautiful thing to be delighted in. Romantic love between a man and a woman, is a beautiful thing to be delighted in. You can't read this poem and not walk away with this. There's no way around this. Chapter 7, verse 7. Your stature is like that of the palm, and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. Song of Songs says very powerfully and passionately that love between a man and a woman, and, and particularly passionate sexual love is a good gift from God. If we want to live wisely in this world, we do well to acknowledge this. But this book is saying far, far more than sex is great and intoxicating and so you should pursue it above all else. In fact, it's saying anything but that. It's saying that sex is great and intoxicating, but it's to be pursued only in its right context. And throughout this book, again and again, it shows that wisdom in a romantic relationship is always accompanied by three things. There's always self-giving, desire, and commitment. You see all three over and over again, always present. Self-giving, not selfish taking. Desire, not half-hearted obligation. And commitment, not unfaithfulness. You see an example of all three at once in chapter 2, verse 16. My beloved is mine and I am his. There's self-giving, there's desire, and there's commitment. 
What's the wise way to approach romance and sex? The answer is with complete self-giving, with delight, encouraging desire, and with absolute commitment to enjoying intimate romance and sex with the one person for life in marriage. God's wisdom tells us that without self-giving, without desire, and without commitment, romance and sex are not the beautiful, delightful thing that he's made them to be. In many ways, this whole book is just a celebration of Genesis 2.25. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And maybe that's why there are so many garden images used throughout the poem. What I want us to do now is very quickly get a, a bit of an idea of the whole book. This is quite tricky, but we'll see how we go. Follow along with me um, as I do this. You can follow along on your phone or, or your Bible if you've got it there. Verse 1 is actually a title, and it says Solomon's Song of Songs. Song of Songs means this is the greatest of all songs, which means romantic love is in some sense one of the greatest gifts God gives within creation. The fact that this is Solomon's song could mean this song is written by Solomon or written for Solomon, or it could mean it's about Solomon, or it's written in the tradition of wisdom literature which Solomon is famous for. Whatever the case may be, Solomon's not the main character. Look at verse 6 in chapter 1. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. She's suntanned. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard, her body, I had to neglect. This is the story of, of a rustic country girl, not a pampered princess, and it's told from her, her perspective. And it's not about Solomon. It's about a country boy. Look at verse 7. Tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday. She's not talking about Solomon. He was never a shepherd. He was always a prince and then a king. So the poem is written from this country girl's perspective. It's her voice we hear and the voice of her beloved as she gives him voice. And occasionally we hear the voice of others too. And when she calls her beloved king, it's like she's calling him her Prince Charming, except that Prince Charming back then was Solomon. To her, this shepherd boy really is like a king. And Solomon may have his riches and his harem, but they, these two, they don't want or need any of that as long as they have each other. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So come back with me to chapter one. It starts in chapter 1 with their mutual appreciation of each other. In verse 15, he says, How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful your eyes are doves. In verse 16, she says, How handsome you are, my beloved. Oh, how charming. The girl is longing to be with her shepherd boy lover. And then at the end of chapter 1, they are together, at least in her dreams. First in the forest, verse 16, Our bed is verdant. The beams of our house are cedars. And then in the bank, banquet hall, on the farm, in the vineyard. And then as things get a bit racy, we have this expression that repeats across the poem. 2 verse 7. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Which means don't interfere. Let love take its natural course. At the right time, the consummation will come. And when that proper time comes, that's the time to delight in romance and sexual longing. 
part of the beauty of romantic love is that it's incredibly powerful and it's, it's all-consuming. But as we'll see, this can have a dangerous side. And so wisdom in this song is to wait till the time is right to awaken and to give in to the power of romantic love. Keep in mind that this poem is not a story like we're used to. The story we're used to goes like this. Boy meets girl. They fall in love. There's a problem. The problem is overcome. And so they live happily ever after. We find it almost impossible not to put that grid on this poem. Boy meets girl. They fall in love. There's a problem. The problem is overcome. And so they live happily ever after. There you go. I've just saved you heaps of time. You never need to watch a romantic movie again. Now, there are elements of this kind of story in this poem, but it's not neat. It's very messy. It, it just doesn't go from A to B like we're used to. Let me show you what I mean. In chapter one, she's looking for her shepherd boy lover, and she seems to find him. At the start of chapter two, she's still with him. But then suddenly in verse eight, we read, listen, my beloved, look. Here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. Somewhere between verse 7 and verse 8, he's disappeared and then he reappears again. Scenes change with no warning in the song and and it seems almost like no meaning as well. It feels like there's no storyline or connection. The poem feels almost like a dream. The love is there, but then he's not, but then suddenly he's, he's there again. So we need to be careful that we don't read the poem like a typical boy meets girl story. It just doesn't work that way. But having said that, there are some of the themes of problems being overcome in the song. It's hard to say with 100% confidence, but possibly everything in chapter 1 and 2 is in the dreaming of this country girl. Rather than it being about their lovemaking, it's probably written in, in longing of what's to come. In other words, there's a tension in the poem where it's hard to distinguish what's reality and what's fantasy, what's idealism and what's realism. Let me show you where this really becomes clear. Look at chapter 3 now and verse 1. All night long on my bed I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him but did not find him. Here we definitely have the young woman talking about her dreams. In her dreams, she looks for her loved one, but she can't find him. And this opens up a new theme in the book. The poem isn't all idealistic. The reality is that love makes you vulnerable. With love in this life comes fear. And here we see fear of separation and fear of loss. And this introduces us to the second bit of wisdom God gives us in the Song of Songs. Romantic love between a man and a woman is a precarious thing to be protected. Romantic love between a man and a woman is a precarious thing to be protected. Some parts of this poem have a bit of the classic will they, won't they storyline. Scattered across the poem, there are threats and dangers to their love. Here in chapter 3, in her dream, she can't find her beloved and probably still in her dreams, she goes looking for him and then she does find him in verse 4. But then she loses him again in chapter 5, verse 2 for some reason. She's very careless, except that this time it's even more sinister. Chapter 5, verse 2, I slept, but my heart 
was awake. She's dreaming. And in her dreams, her lover knocks on the door, but he's always just out of her reach. This is a nightmare. And as she desperately searches for him in her dream, she's beaten and abused by the city watchman in verse 7. There's a real sense that love in this fallen world is a great gift, but it's a precarious gift. There are no guarantees. And to love is to open yourself to the real possibility of loss. And there's not just danger from strangers in this poem. At a couple of places, their love is endangered by people interfering much closer to home, people like her brothers trying to end the relationship. We see a bit of an example of this threat in chapter 8, verse 1. She says, If only you were to me like a brother who was nursed at my mother's breast, which sounds extremely weird to us because we don't understand her world. But look at why she says it in the second part of verse 1. Then, if I found you outside, I would kiss you and no one would despise me. What she's saying is she's, she's longing to be married to him. She's longing for their relationship to be accepted by her family and community so she can freely be with him, freely be seen with him in public and be affectionate. And she's longing for the time when she can stop dreaming about awakening love and instead be married and fully sexually intimate with her beloved. Verse 2, I would lead you and bring you to my mother's house. That's probably not the honeymoon we would dream about, hanging out at mum's place, but hers is a different world to ours. And so the poem ends in chapter 8 with her dreams becoming reality. It's really easy to miss this. But you see this in verse 5. It's a verse very different to anything else in the song so far. Have a look at verse 5. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Who is this publicly, that's what's different, publicly affectionate with her beloved? It's her. Solomon's wedding procession, Earlier on, in chapter 3, verse 6, it was described in the exact same way in one of her dreams as Solomon coming up from the wilderness, and that was his wedding procession. So what we see here is that her dreams are now finally reality. She dreamed about bringing her beloved home, and here, finally, she does. Her relationship is accepted, and now she's married, and she fully delights in all that that means. And that's the meaning of the coda too, the coda to the song, which goes from verse 8 to 14. It's it's a kind of summary of the whole song. But just before the coda, right at the end of the main part of the song, we come to the key bit of wisdom about romantic love that Song of Songs gives us. Look at verse 6. She says, place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. This is about commitment. She's saying, be bound to me, bind yourself to me. She goes on, for love is as strong as death. It's jealousy as unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. God's wisdom says romantic love is beautiful and to be delighted. And it can't be bought or exchanged for money. But it also says love is precarious and to be protected. And more than that, it's as strong as death. 
It might be beautiful, but it's not to be mucked around with. Love is dangerous even, dangerous like floodwaters, dangerous like blazing fire. And so romantic love should only be awakened and allowed to burn and encouraged to burn in the right place at the right time. And so now we return to our question. Why is the Song of Songs in the Bible? What does it tell us about romantic love? It tells us that it's wise, really wise, to see romantic love as a beautiful thing to be delighted in. And it's wise to see romantic love as a precarious thing to be protected. And it's wise to see romantic love as a dangerous thing to be directed. For some reason, people often think God is anti-sex. Song of Songs shows quite convincingly that nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. God is not only the creator of sex, but think about this. He's also the creator of the powerful, all-consuming drive of desire and longing. He made that. And Song of Songs shows us that God wants us to delight in that drive. But to do that properly, it means delighting in it his way. And that means delighting in it with self-giving, with desire for the one person, with lifelong commitment. So let me ask us, is that what we're doing? Are we being wise about romantic love? I want to push us to think this through a bit further. And so I'm going to talk to us in our different kind of life circumstances that we find ourselves. So first, let me speak to those of us who are married. Yes, this song is about young love and desire. Yes, it's idealistic and unrealistic in many ways. It's true that at no point in the Song of Songs do the realities of work and kids and age and man flu get in the way of romance and sex. But still, God's wisdom speaks to us through Song of Songs if we're married, even if we've been married for a long time. And it says romantic love is a good gift from God. And work and kids and age, they don't change that. We do easily accept the excuse that now that real life's caught up with us, we shouldn't bother with romance. And we should just give up on encouraging sexual desire and delighting in it. But that's not wisdom. That's not living well in God's world. How can I be so sure about this? Well, Proverbs 5.18 says, May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. This is language very similar to Song of Songs. And Proverbs says that wisdom keeps romantic love and intoxicated intoxication, alive beyond our youth. Wisdom is to keep delighting in romantic love. Sure, it has its seasons, but wisdom doesn't use that as an excuse to not bother at all. So if you're married, what are you doing to pursue romance? It's incredibly unwise to have the gift of relationship with someone and to not bother to pursue them romantically. Wisdom in romance is to be self-giving, delighting in desire, and absolutely committed. And if you're a parent, what message about romantic love do your kids get from you? If they get no message from you, 
That probably means they're getting their wisdom on romance from the world, from TV and from friends at school. And maybe what they're hearing from your silence is that sex and romance is something we shouldn't delight in. That would be a tragedy. Second, let me speak to those of us who aren't married yet but expect that one day they will be. If that's you, Song of Songs still has plenty of things to say. It says sexual desire in its right place is a great thing, but it also tells you to be wary awakening romantic love until the time is right because love is so powerful that it can be destructive and dangerous. How many people have you seen make foolish decisions because of romantic love? I've seen so many. I've seen people throw their lives away and make stupid decisions and marry selfish people. I've seen people throw their marriage away because of romantic love for another person, someone that they're not married to. I've seen people throw their faith away and give up on God for a relationship that just doesn't last. Song of Songs is not about being in love with love. It's about self-giving, desire and commitment. It's about delighting in love shared with the right person. Just to be crystal clear on this, God tells us sex is only ever right in marriage with someone of the opposite sex. And if we belong to Jesus, it's only ever right for us to marry someone who also belongs to Jesus. Outside of that, sex is not only unwise, but it's selfish and wrong. We know Christians sin in this area, and we know God forgives those of us who turn back to him. But turning back to God means turning away from things that are wrong. You probably notice that Christians tend to get married younger, and that's nothing to be ashamed of. If you've met the right person, why wait till you're 30? Romantic love is powerful, and while there's nothing wrong with that, we shouldn't be foolish about it. Having an engagement that's three years long is is probably not wise in my opinion. It's too long. It makes it too hard to wait till marriage to have sex. I reckon it would be much wiser to be engaged for six months or a year max. Now, finally, I want to speak to those of us who aren't married and may not ever be married. The wisdom of Song of Songs still speaks here. Some, Some of it we've already seen. Some of what I've already said is relevant to you as well. But apart from that, wisdom also says to you, it's okay and it's wise to realise that there's a loss with being single. For some people, it's a loss that you've willingly embraced. Jesus was willingly single, so was the Apostle Paul. And of course, they were no less significant than anyone else. Jesus is of infinite value. But nonetheless, singleness is a real sacrifice. Some people are single for the sake of God's kingdom. One of our previous link missionaries made that choice. Some are single for the sake of their children. They don't want to remarry. Some are single because they're same-sex attracted and they know it would be wrong to act on their attraction. Some are single because they've chosen not to pursue just any person but only the right person but for whatever reason, that person has never come along. Can I just say that in all of these situations, each one of these decisions is incredibly noble in its own way. Incredibly noble. 
But that doesn't make it make it an easy decision to have made or an easy decision to live with. And we as God's family, we need to embrace and support people who make these kinds of decisions. If this is you, you've made the decision to find your identity in Jesus and he will never disappoint you. And this brings us about as far as the Song of Songs can take us. But the rest of Scripture takes us even further because the rest of Scripture tells us that romantic love between a man and a woman is a symbolic thing to be fulfilled. Romantic love between a man and a woman is a symbolic thing to be fulfilled. In the end, marriage, it's not the ultimate gift from God. It's not the greatest song that will ever be sung. Look at how the Apostle Paul talks about this in Ephesians 5.31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Song of Songs really is about the gift of human marriage. But human marriage has always really been a symbol that points to a far greater love, God's love for us. Romantic love may be one of God's greatest gifts within this created world, but God gives us a greater gift that comes from outside his created world. He gives us the gift of himself. And human marriage, even when it's working at its its absolute best, it's still only ever a symbol that points to this far greater relationship. Of course, Christ's love for the church is not romantic love. It's, It's far greater than that. But it is love that's self-giving. It is love full of desire to be with his people. It's a love that's stronger than death, a love of unyielding jealousy, a blazing fire that cannot be quenched by even the deepest sea. And God's love is absolute commitment to dwell with us in a world perfected forever. So for us, romantic love can never be an idol. We know it's not what this life is all about. It points to a greater reality that's coming for all of us, whether we're married or not. And it's a reality that's far, far better than any romance that we could experience in this world.